This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am your host, Brent Nelson, and I hope that you're having a great uh, Wednesday. It's a beautiful day today. I happen to be in Barcelona, Spain, so hopefully you find yourself somewhere nice and pleasant today uh, to enjoy this conversation with me. I wanted to get you catch up, caught up today on kind of what has been going on in the markets, the volatility in particular that's been going on in the markets. And just a reminder that volatility in the market is not necessarily something that is uh, that is bad. First of all, uh, volatility in the markets is to be expected because the sort of thing that just happens in the markets, it is, it is a product of the market having upticks and downturns and all of that is totally normal. So uh, there, there's been volatility in the past. There will be volatil- volatility in the future. And so the existence of volatility now is not really much of a surprise. But one of the things that uh, sometimes gets lost in the furor about um, volatility, especially when the volatility is in the negative, like it has been recently, is that volatility can be an extremely useful tool from purely from a tax planning or sort of wealth planning perspective. So let me give you just a couple of ideas on how that's the case and maybe just a little bit of context. So for for a little bit of context, anybody who maybe hasn't been uh, paying super close attention to what's been going on. Let's say, you know, if you look at just the S&P 500, the top 500 uh, companies traded in the U.S. stock market uh, over the last, say, month, if you just kind of look back at that time horizon, what we've seen certainly uh, over the last week or so is a massive drop, in relative terms, a massive drop in in total valuations from a peak of close to about 4,800 down to uh, today somewhere in the 4,400 range, uh, and that is is really uh, a recovery from a, a nadir or a low point of just a couple of days ago of somewhere in the 4,200 range. So that's a pretty big drop, a 600 point drop in the course of you know say a couple of months. Um, and certainly there have been some very, very peaks, large peak and value valleys in the last couple of days, some historically large peaks and valleys. Uh, but peaks and valleys, as I said, in the in the market are not necessarily a surprise. So so sometimes when you look at or when I look at markets like that, I start to think a couple of things. So first of all, in a down market and where uh, values are suppressed, uh, it is a market that can be advantageous for planning. And that's because a lot of the wealth planning techniques, particularly on the the higher side of things, you know, very high net worth individual side of things, depend very much, um, at least from a success perspective, success being the maximum amount of wealth being passed to the future generations, depend very much on appreciation in the assets. And then they also depend on certain interest rates. There's been talk about the Federal Reserve uh, increasing federal interest rates um, 
so far that hasn't happened. Uh, they haven't made any announcements yet as of the time that I'm recording this. Um, most people anticipate that they will. How much of an interest rate increase, if any, that they'll uh, announce, you know, who knows? It's, it's, it's anybody's guess at this point. But the, the pertinent interest rates are not necessarily those rates. They're the rates determined by the IRS. And the IRS rates still to this day are relatively low historically. Um, the, the main interest rate there's really two main interest rates. One is the applicable federal rate. The applicable federal rate is a rate that is the minimum amount of interest that the IRS says. If you charge on debt, they will not uh, cause you to impute or pretend like there was uh, interest already on the debt. And and also they say if you charge at least the applicable federal rate, then you don't have to pretend like you made a gift by not forcing your family member, for example, to pay interest to you on a loan. Then the other uh, important interest rate is what's called the 7520 rate, and the 7520 rate is 220% of the, the midterm applicable federal rate, which is the applicable federal rate for the month. Uh, on any notes that are between, say, three year, three plus years and uh, just shy of 10 years, that's the midterm rate. So 120% of the midterm rate gives you the 75-20 rate. So currently, those rates are historically low. The the mid, we'll say the mid midterm applicable federal rate for February is going to be 1.4%. So 1.4% per year. And the 75-20 rate for February is going to be 1.6%. And those, again, in, in historical terms are quite low. Now, the reason it matters that those rates are low is that the wealth transfer techniques that I'm about to mention depend on the investments at least outperforming those interest rates. Okay, And then there's, a, there's an attendant effect when the values of the assets are low, at least at the outset of the transaction. I'll explain how that works. So the first transaction where this becomes really important is what's called a grantor retained annuity trust or GRAT. And in a GRAT, the grantor contributes assets to the trust, receives back from the trust a promise over a certain number of years to receive annuity payments each year. Annuity payments could be level, meaning they could be the same each year, or they could increase in value as long as they don't increase in value more than 120% of the prior year's annuity. But if you sort of think of it as level payments over a period of years, then that's basically what a grad is. So let's say you put $100 into the grad, it, it agrees to pay you $110 back over the course of five years in equal payments, uh, then those annuity payments, those equal payments each year uh, are the, the annuity payment coming out of the trust. And if at the end of the five years, the trust has any money left, that money goes to your uh, family members. And based on actu actuarial calculations, if the $110 coming back to you over the course of five years is worth in current dollars, $100, then there would have been no gift for the amount of money that's going to go to family at the end of the grant term. So it's as if you put all the money in, you got all the money back, and therefore you made no gift. That's the way that the grant rules work. And that can be quite handy. So obviously, uh, if the assets inside the grant appreciate in value, there's likely to be more assets left over at the end of the grant term that could go to family members. And the GRAT uses the 7520 rate. So say in February, if the GRAT over its lifetime makes more than 1.6% on its investments, then uh, 
there's going to be money left over in the grant to go to family members, even though in the eyes of the IRS, no gift was made. These uh, so-called zeroed out grants really perform well when the assets that go in initially are depreciated in value. And over the course of the grant term, they appreciate in value. And and that's for two reasons. It's not it's not just because you need to beat the 75-20 rate in order to have something left over in the trust to give to family members. It's because every time you are compounding returns inside the grant in excess of the 75-20 rate, the returns in the next year less whatever has to get paid out on the annuity payments, the returns in the next year are also being earned on the increased value. So if you put $100 in and then that $100 turned into $150 in the first year, and then you pay out, say, $20 in the first year's annuity payment, the next year's annuity payment is going to be paid out of $130 plus the appreciation on $130, not appreciation on $100, $130. So as a percentage of the original amount that went into the trust, in fact, the return that you need to make gets pushed down because now the trust has more money and more assets that are appreciating in value. So in essence, if the, if the assets are appreciating in value over time, the quote hurdle rate or 75-20 rate, in effect, mathematically gets pushed down below the, say, 1.6% amount because there's just more money in the trust than there originally was. Uh, and so you're making appreciation on more money than was originally in the trust, and therefore you don't need to actually cover the full 1.6% on the initial contribution. You need to, you need to cover a smaller percentage on the actual amount that's in the trust. Okay, so easier terms, maybe if you have to pay a $20 annuity and you initially put in $100, well, 20 divided by 100 gives you one particular percentage, but if the $100 appreciates to 130, 20 divided by 130 is going to give you a much smaller percentage. So therefore, the amount of the trust assets by a percentage that you need year over year, if they're appreciating in value, uh, is, a, is a much smaller percentage than originally when you originally formed the trust. So mathematically, the percentage return you need to pay the annuity, in essence, is going down. So taking two steps back, if you think about when you have markets that are depressed in value, so the value of the thing that you're putting in originally in the grant is at a low valuation, plus you have these low interest rates, it means that the possibility of getting these benefits of this appreciation in value, plus paying out a low annuity amount and the appreciation in value causing over time the actual percentage return you need to be decreasing because the assets in the trust are increasing, that the possibility of that scenario happening is more likely, okay, much more likely. Therefore, the success of transferring wealth is also more likely. So let me give you another scenario where this happens. So very commonly, someone will decide for a variety of reasons that what they want to do is sell assets to an irrevocable grantor trust, meaning to a trust that for income tax purposes, that person is treated as if they own all the assets in the trust. And that sale transaction is an income tax-free transaction. And so you can do the transaction without a sale, without any uh, capital gains tax. And so long as the sale price is the fair market value of the thing that you're selling, the money you receive back uh, doesn't cause a gift. 
and if the assets inside the trust, after paying you back for the sale, have appreciated in value, and there's assets left in the trust, the amount that's left in the trust is left in the trust without making a gift because it's as if you sold everything and got 100% of the fair market value of what you sold back even though the assets inside the trust appreciated in value. Okay, sim very similar principles to a trust, except in this case, usually the grantor would take back a promissory note. And a promissory note, usually, although not always, would pay the applicable federal rate. It would at least pay the applicable federal rate, that 1.4% number, uh, but it, it may be something higher than that. You, you it wouldn't be something less than the applicable federal rate. But similar principles apply now where uh, you you put depreciated assets or you sell depreciated assets into the trust. The trust is going to pay you back, say, the applicable federal rate, the 1.4%. But in this case, usually the the note payment is interest only until the end with a balloon payment. So if the note is paying you interest only with a balloon payment at the end and the assets inside the trust that you've sold are appreciating in value, again, as they appreciate in value, as a percentage of their value, the interest that has to be paid becomes a much smaller percentage. Just mathematically, it becomes a smaller percentage, meaning the rate of return you actually need to cover the interest payment every year is going down over time if the asset inside the trust is appreciating. So mathematically, in this strange quirk that I keep harping on, um, there's a higher degree of likelihood that the transaction is going to be a, quote, success, meaning there's going to be assets left inside the trust from the sale, uh, net of what is paid back to the grantor to pay off the grantor in the transaction. Another type of transaction that relies on this um, is is a charitable transaction called a charitable lead annuity trust or CLAT. And the CLAT is basically a GRAT, except rather than the grantor receiving the annuity payment, a charity receives the annuity payment. But all the same principles apply. So if the assets inside the CLAT are appreciating in value, then the percentage of the assets of the, tr of the trust that are needed to cover the annuity payment to the charity actually decreases in value mathematically for, for all the reasons that I've been boringly droning on about here. And the likelihood that there's going to be something left over in the trust after the end of its term to pay out to family members uh, also goes up. So with the CLAT, like with the GRAT, you pay the annuity payment to the charity for a certain number of years. And at the end of those number of years, say two, three, four, or five, at the end of those number of years, if there's anything left in the trust, the amount left in the trust can go to family members. And if the values match up right, that can be done in a way that the IRS says, yep, no gift tax at all, even if money ends up going to family members in the end. And again, this can be done in a way that um, that increases the likelihood of success when the assets that are put into the trust initially have a low valuation and the interest rate that applies is also low. And in the case of a CLAT, the interest rate, just like with a GRAT, the interest rate that applies is the 75-20 rate. Okay. It also applies in the case of what's called a preferred partnership. And with a preferred partnership, one family member would contribute assets to a partnership and receive back preferred interests and then what are sometimes called common interests. And then that family member would usually gift the common interests to other family members, maybe kids or grandkids or trusts for kids or grandkids. And they would retain the preferred interests. And the preferred interests 
would say something to this effect. You, the preferred interest holder, are entitled to two things. Number one, you're entitled to a certain percentage return on your initial investment every year. And then your in that amount, that percentage is going to be based on the initial investment and then whatever amount hasn't been paid to you. So if you put in $100 and in the first year you got paid back your percentage plus $50, the next year you're entitled to whatever the percentage is on, whatever the percentage is on the remaining $50 that you have been paid back. So uh, then it says, if we liquidate the, the partnership, you, the preferred interest holder, are entitled to get back whatever percentage amount you haven't been paid yet, your, like a dividend, plus your original investment to the extent that we haven't already paid you back your original original investment. The balance goes to the common unit holders. Well, even though this doesn't, the percentages that are used to determine the preferred return amount are not exactly the interest rates, the AFR rate and the 7520 rate. Um, if the assets that originally went into the the partnership are depreciated in value and they increase in value over the term of the partnership, a similar effect occurs where as they appreciate in value, the percentage of or the percentage return on the partnership assets that you need to cover the preferred return, this percentage dividend paid to the preferred interest holder, uh, actually goes down. So for example, if the if the uh, you know, parents put in a thousand dollars into the preferred into the preferred partnership, received back a hundred preferred units, gifted away nine hundred common units, and those hundred units, so the hundred dollars at the a thousand, are supposed to pay a seven percent return every year. Well, the partnership initially has a thousand dollars that needs to generate at least seven dollars to pay off that seven percent annually, or seventy dollars, excuse me, to pay off that uh, that seven percent. I'm sorry, seven dollars. I was right the first time, $7 to pay off that 7% annually. And if instead in the next year, the assets in the partnership have appreciated to $2,000, well, then you need to make $7 on $2,000, meaning the percentage return has dropped by half. So again, putting in assets that will appreciate in value up front increases the likelihood that you'll be able to do the things that you said you're going to do, which would be paying back the preferred return amount every year in these preferred partnerships. There's a number of other transactions that are very similar, but I just wanted to use these as for illustration purposes, uh, just to kind of maybe highlight how sometimes in a, in a volatile market or in a market where assets are depreciating in value and people get very scared about that, and for, for some good reasons, because people can lose a lot of money and that's not fun. Um, it does, in some instances, actually create opportunities. And so sometimes it's good to be alive to those opportunities and if and when it's possible to uh, take advantage of them, to, to take advantage of those opportunities when they're available. So hopefully that, uh, that makes some sense. I'll leave it there for now, but hopefully um, get a little bit of clarity on some of the things that people of my ilk think about when they're uh, watching the news and they see things like the S&P 500 having historically bad days uh, in the market, you know, all is not totally lost and it actually can create some, some potential opportunities that, uh, I'm usually thinking I might want to take advantage of for some of my clients if it's possible. All right. Well, I'll leave it there. I appreciate you joining me today and hopefully you, hopefully you have uh, a lovely week and I'll see you next time. 
Hey listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.